Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President Trump prepares to head to Oklahoma. We've got fresh reaction from Mario Parker, Bloomberg White House reporter. And we talk with Matt Borges, founder of the Right Side Pack. He's the former Ohio Republican Party chairman, and he's uniting Republicans against President Trump. And my exclusive interview with Senator Marsha Blackburn, all of that, uh, as well as Senator Chris Coons. Lots to get through. Jam-packed hour. Some breaking news on the DACA front. The Supreme Court on Thursday rejected President Trump's attempt to end the DACA program. This, as the court had a 5-4 decision that found the administration's move to wind down the Obama-era program for DREAMers lacked a legal sound, a sound legal basis. Reading from the legendary Supreme Court reporter Josh Gerstein's reporting on Politico. All right, Mario Parker's on the line. Mario is a Bloomberg White House reporter. What has the response been, Mario, on the DACA ruling? Well, um, Kevin, well, uh, President Trump is none too pleased. Um, he took to Twitter uh, to um, uh, essentially attack the court's decision. Uh, this was the second one this week uh, that was um, not necessarily in line with uh, the conservative brand um, that he's uh, made, the pitch that he's made to voters about why he deserves a second term and, and who he's appointed to the court and that the court reflects uh, his basis of views. So earlier today, he tweeted um, that these are horrible and politically charged decisions. He also mused whether or not um, the court uh, likes him. And then lastly, you know, he uh, hinted at uh, 2020, um, saying that he has a new list of possible conservative Supreme Court nominees uh, that he'll be uh, unveiling. So, I mean, it really is quite remarkable, two historic decisions on the Supreme Court, one of his, uh, several of his appointees uh, sitting already on the on the Supreme Court and the president uh, weighing in on Twitter. Now, I thought it was interesting in this tweet that you just alluded to, these horrible and politically charged decisions coming out of the Supreme Court are shotgun blasts into the face of people that are proud to call themselves Republicans or conservatives. We need more justices or we will lose our second amendment and everything else vote Trump in 2020 but I, I I think it's interesting that he's not necessarily listing the specific cases so it's 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 a really interesting dynamic in terms of what he's 
saying uh, because on the one hand he's being critical of the decisions but he's not saying which decisions he's critical of you get what i'm saying mario right no absolutely um just watching the decision earlier this week uh and watching what his response would be it was relatively muted um and so we didn't see a, a real response um you know vis-a-vis what we're saying today rather uh that was uh, really charged um but no he he you're absolutely right i mean the, the president is it, he's in this tough political position where um you know and and this moment mind you where he he's trying to at once throw red meat to his base but at the same time um not um offend or uh hurt himself further with other voters as well so he's trying to 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 tow this delicate line that that most people in his position would would tow but he's also of course very very boisterous and very opinionated and he uh rarely holds back as well so it's it's that's a very tough dance for someone uh that that takes to twitter and and we're of course all looking for that commentary and that is the instant reaction yeah, precisely. All right, Mario, let's switch gears. John Bolton's book really ricocheting its way in and out of Washington Zoom conferences. I mean, this is the talk of the town, uh, especially as now uh, the administration suing to keep it out of bookstores and off of online bookshelves. Mm-hmm. What did the administration say now, 24 hours out, following the allegations that the president had asked Xi Jinping in China for an assist in the election? Well, there's a couple of things coming out now. Um, earlier today, uh, Peter Navarro um, was at the White House. He did a TV hit, but he also uh, did a held a gaggle with reporters, in which he, I mean, he really, um, he really took some fi- took fire to to Bolton. He says that uh, he was there, uh, and he doesn't recall that conversation going the way it did. He also alluded to uh, Bolton's, um, or alleged that Bolton may not be telling the truth about certain things, and then um, essentially said that, you know, he shouldn't be uh, divulging classified information for a book. So if, if that sounds like that doesn't all line up, that's about right. <laughs> because yeah. uh, at, at once there, the White House is signaling that, that the book is... Uh, full of inaccuracies. But on the other hand, the White House is also saying that uh, he's divulging classified information. So we're, we're still unsure <laughs> as to, <laughs> to which line it is, but that's been the White House line, and it's both lies and classified. It's, it really is. It really truthfully is quite remarkable. And then just uh, I, I do want to highlight this uh, because coming up on the program, we're going to hear from Senators Chris Coons and Marsha Blackburn on a host of different geopolitical and domestic issues. One of those issues is China and U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, stressing the need for full transparency and information sharing during the global COVID-19 pandemic and future outbreaks. This is he met in Hawaii Hawaii, Pompeo's in Hawaii with his Chinese counterpart, uh, Yang Shichi. Uh, and that was a Wednesday summit, uh, Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii between Pompeo and Yang. So, I mean, what has the Trump administration been saying, Mario, about, um, about China? Because in the backdrop of the Bolton book allegations, you've got mm-hmm. the Uyghur executive order and now you've got this. 
Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and, and even then, it's um, some somewhat discordant uh, discordant uh, messaging. I mean, the president has been uh, been his toughened his tone on China uh, over the last few months as it relates to uh, the handling of the coronavirus. Of course, as you mentioned, uh, Mike Pompeo has also taken uh, taken a, a harsh tone. Uh, the president this afternoon. Um, during an event here at the White House, actually sent a tweet uh, refuting uh, comments by uh, Representative Lighthizer uh, about um, whether or not the U.S. would be willing to decouple from China. Um, President Trump said the U.S. uh, could indeed pursue a complete decoupling from China uh, in response to, you know, unspecified conditions. But that's that's been kind of the the messaging. It's been a tougher tone. um, But as you also mentioned, I mean, the Bolton book kind of it, it, it uh, undermines this argument that the president would be tougher on China or has been tougher on China than the dem- presumptive dem- Democratic nominee would be. All right. All right. Stick around, Mario Parker, because you've got an incredible story that was on the Bloomberg Terminal last week about President Trump's provocative racial rhetoric and how he's increasingly been alone on that. Mario Parker is a Bloomberg White House reporter. Stick it right here. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We've got Marsha Blackburn, Chris Coons, and you don't want to miss this. I'm telling you, you do not want to miss this. He is the Republican trying to unite other Republicans in the Never Trump movement. He's calling in as well. Right around the corner, you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Criminal liability. That's what President Trump said. John Bolton is going to face criminal liability if he publishes that talk of the town tell-all book. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're still buzzing about that book by John Bolton, the bombshells in this book. But, you know, I mean, now it's in the, the you know, President Trump saying he's, you know, breaching his contract and all, and all this I don't know, folks. I feel like we've seen this. Remember the Amorosa book? I'm I'm old enough to remember the Amorosa book. Remember when she was like bugged the she had like the the recorder in the in the what was it the uh, the Situation Room? Can't make it up. Mario Parker's on the line. He's my colleague. He is the Bloomberg White House reporter. Mario, I uh, you and I were talking about this offline. I loved your story the other week. Uh, and it's on the Bloomberg Terminal, and I'm going to pull it up now. Here it is. Uh, Trump is increasingly alone in provocative racial rhetoric. President Trump is resisting a new rush to address police brutality and tear down Confederate symbols, even as polls show Americans believe changes are needed, and many corporations, including NASCAR with its conservative fan base, embrace a more proactive stance on issues of racial justice. Where does the president stand now midweek? Well, we know he has he, uh, he issued the executive order uh, earlier this week, um, but that was kind of criticized uh, as not being uh, far enough uh, for uh, Democrats and detractors. He's uh, tried to just toe this line between um, he, his campaign has made this outreach toward black voters, 
But uh, the the president, some of the the rhetoric that he's employed um, has uh, alienated uh, or further alienated some of those voters. But also, um, you know, it hasn't been to to, to a balm on the wound of a reeling country. Um, just the, the tweets about law and order or um, about sicking uh, vicious dogs and protesters. Um, the 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 allusion to um, not being in favor yeah. of removing yeah. Confederate statues. Yeah, exactly. All right, Mario Parker, great stuff. Thanks for calling in. He's Bloomberg's White House reporter. Switching gears now to Capitol Hill. I was up on Capitol Hill today, and I interviewed Senator Chris Coons on a host of different topics. One of them is a bipartisan bill that he's introduced to expand access to young people on AmeriCorps, this as they struggle to have a new funnel into the economy. Take a listen to what he told me. AmeriCorps is a national service program that allows young Americans to spend a year in service to our country through a local nonprofit and earn some money for college, uh, a living stipend, uh, and get health care for that year. Currently, there's 75,000 people serving in AmeriCorps in every single state and territory. We would double the size of that program. We would increase the living stipend. They make just minimum wage now, and it would bump it up just a little to 22000 a year and increase how much they earn for college. I think in this moment when we've had 44 million Americans apply for unemployment, and that has hit most heavily uh, those who are younger and in particular black and brown communities, this pathway towards opportunity would put 150,000 people into service to help with response to the pandemic, response to the recession, response to growing hunger in this country. It's a proven solution. I am thrilled that we've got Republican Senator Roger Wicker as my lead co-sponsor, but it's also got support from senators like Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, John Cornyn, and others. I think it's got a great chance of moving forward. It's another pipeline for young people during this downturn to find an opportunity to help the country. It's a chance to serve, to get to know each other from different backgrounds and different parts of our country, to contribute to the country, and to earn money for a college opportunity. I think it's a great path forward. Meanwhile, there's a, a, a lot of talk about whether or not more economic relief and an economic stimulus is going to come, whether it be end of July, early August, or even in the fall. What can you tell us about a potential timeline for another round of stimulus? I'm really surprised that we're not right now negotiating the final details of the next round and surprised that Majority Leader McConnell says we don't need to be doing that. Uh, When the Fed chairman yesterday was testifying and the Secretary of the Treasury last week was testifying that we absolutely need another round. Today, I'm introducing a bill with several of my colleagues, Senators Cardin and Shaheen, that would take what is left of the money in the Paycheck Protection Program. Which is like and 100 and 140 billion. billion. Yeah. And it would prioritize it. It would take 25 billion specifically for the very smallest companies, 10 or fewer employees that have lost 50% of their revenue or more, and the rest of it for those earn, uh, employing below 100. And it would expedite the review and approval process for a second PPP loan, a loan to grant, for those that have completed a first one successfully. Well, I think there's this frustration amongst Main Street small business leaders of those incredibly small businesses in terms of they don't know where to go to get information. They don't know where this money is going to come from. 
How do small businesses get access to that in this fog of pandemic economic war? So three things. I've done lots of calls in Delaware uh, with small businesses, with our chambers of commerce in smaller towns as well as our larger cities. We don't have really large cities in Delaware. Um, and made sure that that information is on my website. Um, we've engaged a lot of lenders. So in the very first round, it was really only the very largest lenders that responded quickly. Um, but then it moved to regional banks, to credit unions, to CDFIs, community development, financial institutions. All of them have been given now better training, better direction, better resources. And so we should be in a place where the very smallest uh, businesses are able to access loans. Um, the Small Business Administration has also partnered with some fintech companies to make PPP loans available uh, literally on your cell phone. Beyond that, it comes down to data mm -hmm. and where the money is going, tracking the money so that if, if one sector isn't getting enough or one portion isn't getting enough, that you're able to see that. Are you satisfied with how the administration has been transparent in terms of allocating these resources? I'm not. Uh, last week we had a small business committee hearing. Um, I pressed the SBA administrator and the Secretary of the Treasury, and so did several other senators, about the lack of full transparency on what companies of what size are getting what, what grants. If they've spent $500 billion in taxpayer money, just on the PPP program, and if $2.3 trillion has gone out the door just in the CARES Act alone, we owe it to the American taxpayers to deliver on transparency. We put robust provisions in the bill to provide for transparency, and so far, frankly, we've mostly seen either obstruction or foot dragging from key elements of the administration. In some areas, there's been transparency, but in this program in particular, I'm concerned there hasn't been enough. That was Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, speaking on a variety of topics. And again, he's introducing that legislation to try to get that liquidity to actual, actual small businesses. Much more coming up next. We're going to check in with Senator Marsha Blackburn and the man who's trying to unite the Never Trump movement. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Some disappointing, some disappointing, disappointing jobs numbers uh, today. And we got to talk about it. Uh, we have to talk about it. And let me read the jobs numbers on the Bloomberg Terminal. Trying to find it now. Weekly jobless claims worse than forecast. This via the Department of Labor. Initial jobless claims, 1.51 million. That's down from 1.57 million week before. And the expectation was 1.29 million. So the jobless claims still missing the mark. Economists were optimistic. And uh, hey, they were missing the mark. And the continuing claims. So this is how many people continuing to file for unemployment. It decreased. The 20.5 million, but economists expected it to go down to 19.9 million. Um, so, yeah, not a good, 
Not a good uh, jobless claims day. Joining us on the line, Matt Borges. He's the founder of Right Side PAC and former former Ohio Republican Party chairman. Matt, you are leading the charge for the Never Trumpers, for the Republicans to back Biden, and you have got the attention of the White House uh, because they <laughs> they are not too happy about some of the ads that they're seeing coming out of that wing of the party. But, you, but tell me why, because I just told you that the economic numbers do you think Joe Biden would do a better job on the economy than Trump? Well, hi, Kevin. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on tonight. Um, look, I, I think there's any number of, uh, of issues that we could talk about that, um, that uh, has led me to a place where I never really thought I would ever be. I've been in this business for 30 years. I've worked on presidential campaigns, traveled all over the country, served as chairman of the state party here, have helped countless Republicans win elections, um, in Ohio and, and, and around the country, um, and uh, and this is really a, 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 a an extraordinary situation that we find ourselves in, um, and it's it's one that I was you know banging the drum about all the way back in 2015, um, on into 2016, and then uh, when we hosted the convention and and Donald Trump became our nominee. And none of these are things that I wasn't saying to him personally um, and saying publicly at the time. Um, and, uh, and then he won, he became president. I think a lot of us thought let's, uh, and I voted for, so I, I do want to challenge something that you said kind of at the beginning about being never Trumpers. Well, I wasn't a never Trumper. I voted for Donald Trump and said I was going to, and did so in 2016. So you can't really call me a never Trumper. Um, but what I, when I did that, um, I, I won, we had an opponent that year that most Republicans just thought was absolutely unacceptable. I think almost all Republicans would have said there's just no chance I don't care who we're running against, you know, uh, she's running against, we're not voting for her. Um, and, 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 and then the other thing that was really happening at the time, you probably would recall this, and I was included in, in this, a lot of us thought, you know, once he gets, once he wins, he's acting this way for the campaign, but once he gets there, the, the office, the, the, the position, the, the authority, the, the responsibility will, will bring out a different side of him, will change him, and that certainly has not happened so um, while I kind of, uh, I certainly voted for him, um, although he wasn't my first choice, so wasn't even near my first choice to be our nominee that year. I voted for him in the general election. Um, I wanted to give him a chance. I just don't feel like he's earned uh, my support for uh, this next, uh, for, for this coming election, for the 2020 election. And, uh, and, there, and there's a lot of my Republican friends um, around the country who feel the same way. And so no. that's... Uh, that's why we. That's why we we formed uh, Right Side Pack, uh, the RightSidePack dot com. You can you can check us check us out at RightSidePack dot com, and uh, and 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 you know we, we didn't want to just talk about it anymore. We wanted to take some action, and and you know we we launched our effort uh, yesterday. Matt Borges is on the line. He's the founder of Right Side Pack and the former Ohio Republican Party chairman. So tell us about your strategy. What will you guys be doing? Well, um, if you're one of those Republicans who uh, sees Donald Trump as an existential threat to the country and to the future of the party, uh, which is what I care uh, about, uh, of course, we all care about the country, and I, I care very much about the, the party that I helped build uh, into the juggernaut that it was. Um, uh, for you know, I spent 30 years of my life doing this, but if you're one of those people who just who, who can't abide the behavior and, and, and can't abide having uh, this individual as the standard bearer for our party, uh, then you really have four choices uh, in November. 
you could hold your nose and vote for Donald Trump anyway. You could throw your vote away on a third-party candidate. You could leave it blank, or you could vote for Joe Biden. And if you're one of those folks, like I am, who thinks that Donald Trump is an existential threat, um, the only one of those four that's actually going to help get him out of the White House so that we can begin to heal the country again and begin to rebuild the party again uh, would be to vote for Joe Biden. And if you look at Joe Biden's record on things like his decorum in office, uh, his, the, the, the type of self-dealing that, um, that, that the president has done, uh, you know, that, that uh, um, we would be going crazy if we knew that, uh, that a Democratic president, Barack Obama or Hillary or, 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 or Bill Clinton, had been um, you know, directing business to, directing uh, government, uh, business to their personal properties. I mean, we, we would have absolutely gone ballistic, but yet somehow that that, that seems to go uh, un, un, unchallenged uh, in Republican circles when Donald Trump does it. Um, but on on states' rights, on uh, on spending, on living his life as a person of faith, on um, on on so many other issues, um, uh, re- respecting our allies and our military alliances. Um, there's. There really is is a opportunity to support a candidate like Joe Biden and feel good about it as a Republican. Had this been a race where Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren were the Democratic nominee, no chance I would have been doing this. And almost all of the people that I'm talking to now who are helping with this effort or wanting to get involved in this effort wouldn't have been involved in it either. But um, on, on, on so many issues, uh, Donald Trump's kind of taking the party in the wrong direction, and um, we need a reset. And fortunately, we've got a, 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 an option we can feel good about, because more than all of those things, what we really have is a fundamentally good human being running for president uh, on the Democratic side. And there's not a person who could look you in the eye with a, with a straight face and say that about uh, the current president and the person you know who's, who's, who's running, uh, Donald Trump, who's running uh, for re-election in November. Um, and unfortunately, we, we probably never thought we would really have to actually question that. Um, but here we are. And uh, that's, like I said, why we find ourselves in this really extraordinary set of circumstances. Matt Borges is on the line. He is the uh, he is ah, Matt Borges is on the line. He's the founder of Right Side Pact and former Ohio Republican Party chairman. Matt, let me ask you this. And we've got like a minute and a half left. Uh, when What do you say to folks who say, you know, you know, these are the swing voters. You know, I don't like what he tweets. I don't like the tone. I don't like the rhetoric. But, you know, I, I'm with them on the economy. And those are the, the, the folks that, that I, I would assume you're, you're trying to win over uh, to get on your side. So what do you what do you say to those people? Well, I mean, look, in, in our uh, we're not going to have somebody come to our doorstep if they don't already not like Donald Trump. Um, and so I don't know that we're going to be out there doing a whole lot of persuading. There are other organizations out there that are running a lot of very anti-Donald Trump ads and going on TV and, and being, uh, you know, the web ads and, and radio and different things. That's really not what we're going to do. We're taking the folks that have already self-identified as somebody who voted for him in 16, who does not intend to do it again, and trying to complete that sale, that if you want him out, just holding your nose or just skipping uh, that 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 spot on the on the ballot isn't good enough, um, and reassuring them that there's a, a a good alternative, someone you can feel good about voting for on the Democratic side, which isn't always the case, uh, but in this instance we've got a, a a good person who's been a responsible uh, uh, public official, and certainly, I mean, I mean, there's no comparison between the two when it comes to uh, you know how, how they how they've conducted themselves. 
both in public life and and, and in private life. And um, and and so that's why we, like I said, that's where we find ourselves in, in the situation that we're in now. And uh, and our our goal is going to be once we've identified those blocks of voters in those key states, try to help make sure they turn out and and do what we need them to do uh, at the polls in uh- November. All right, Matt Borges, we'll leave it there. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate the time. And coming up, we check in with Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. And this is Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And Mike Bender had an interview with President Trump in a Wall Street Journal interview that just posted this uh, 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 just within the last uh, day. Uh, and, and the president was asked about whether or not he believes there's systemic uh, racial unrest and systemic racism in the country. And he said, quote, I'd like to think there is not systemic racism, but unfortunately there probably is some. I would also say it's very substantially less than it used to be. This comes, of course, as the president is set to have a campaign style rally in Tulsa. Oklahoma, and it's going to be a big rally, folks. I mean, there's going to be lawmakers there, top administration officials uh, as well, and that's on Saturday. Tomorrow, I'm going to bring you my interview with Mark Lauder. Mark, of course, is one of the top officials on the president's re-election campaign. Lots to get through. What a dizzying day here in the nation's capital. And um, I do want to also just highlight... uh, what the president did today uh, that Nick Wadhams was reporting that the, uh, that he signed an executive order earlier today authorizing sanctions on the international criminal court officials who take part in investigations that the U.S. deems illegal or unauthorized. So that's that's another big headline that came out today. But I began my conversation with our next guest, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, on the DACA ruling. Take a listen. Well, it's disappointing to hear. I think Justice Thomas had it about right, and, you know, we'll move on. Okay, moving on to that. There have been uh, some recent headlines pertaining to Silicon Valley. Uh, Google's ban on conservative news sites, the Federalists and Zero Hedge. There's been a lot of debate in the Republican Party on how to handle this. How should Republicans handle this? It is time for Congress to do something about privacy, data mining, Section 230, you and I have been talking about this for years now. And this is Congress's responsibility to put the rules of the road in place. Here is the problem, is you have these big tech companies that are hiding behind a shield that was put in place when they were little bitty just starting out. Mm -hmm. When they had users that were reposting content. Now. What have these big tech social media companies done? They develop news streams. But do they want to play by the rules like Bloomberg does? The answer is no. But they turn around and they make a decision that the Federalist, which is conservative content, which they don't like, it doesn't fit their political philosophy. So they go to the comment section for third-party postings on that, and then they say, we're going to disallow this and not have that engagement. Here's the problem. What has social media told us since its infancy? They've said, 
we're the public square. We have been saying to them, well, the public square has a cop on the beat mm-hmm. to keep order. They don't want a cop on the beat. You look at YouTube, they let that run wild. You look at things like the Federalist, and they want to go in and they want to take down third-party comments, that participation in public discourse. Well, let me ask you about this, because so many lawmakers on the left and the right have raised concerns about breaking up big tech. But what can actually get done? When you're talking to President Trump, what do you say realistically here's what should be done? Right. And when I talk to President Trump, what I've discussed is let's not do away with Section 230. Let's reform Section 230. What we need to do is set a threshold. If you are 50 million users and less, you have Section 230 protections. If you are more than 50 million users, you're not going to have those Section 230 protections. Also, let's read, look at these terms. The terms inside 230 are overly broad. Free speech, political speech, should be protected. But when you talk about abusive, are unlawful. Let's look at what these terms are and put more definition into what this is supposed to mean. Overly broad terms end up being ripe for abuse. And meanwhile, let's put that definition in. Who should take the lead on this? Should it be commerce? Should it be another agency? Who should be taking the lead on this? It should be judiciary and commerce. They're going to have different uh, components of this bill, but it will be Chairman Graham, Chairman Wicker, working with those of us at the Tech Task Force and addressing this. We've been ready to move forward on this. The Browser Act, is there to address privacy, giving you the ability to opt in, to shield your personal information, to determine what you want the platform to have access to, giving you that first right on opting in or opting out. That ought not to be the prerogative of the platform. I want to, go, I want to go geopolitical for a second because sure. we can talk about domestic politics and, and which news sites are conservative and which sites are liberal. But China has really been also making a play for these big tech companies. And they have been less reactionary than lawmakers in both parties would like. So how does this factor in when you see China playing a role here? Well, China has been in the middle of this from day one. And they like the coziness with big tech, and they continue to push that. And they're doing it for a couple of reasons. When you look at sites like TikTok, Mm -hmm. what is TikTok trying to do? They want to capture those images. And when you look at some of these sites where you put in your picture and it ages you or changes you or whatever, what are they doing? They are capturing and holding your image. They're building a database on you. And you and I've talked many times about who owns the virtual you, which is one of the questions I think everybody should be asking when they're talking about their presence online. China wants to own the virtual you. They want to be able to replicate you online. And through these social media apps and sites, That is how they're doing it. Huawei is a way that they're doing it, trying to get into debt diplomacy 
with all of these different countries and saying, hey, we will provide you with a 5G network. We will provide you with smart city technology. And by the way, we own the data. And, ju and just a final question for you. Sure. What's the next period of time when this will come up or, or in terms of legislation or from, give us a timeline uh, before the end of the summer? Yes, I think this is an area that people are demanding some parity. Mm -hmm. uh, the president, to his credit, last year did a summit on social media, and I was so pleased that he did. And as people have used Zoom more as they have had their children working from home, they find it very interesting that certain categories of information are easily accessed via Google, and others, by the time you get to page 15, you're able to find something yeah. that you want, but you have to really scroll down deep into it. So it is not only the data mining and not only their algorithms, it is the prioritization of the information that is made available to you. So whether it's demonetizing uh, Zero Hedge, whether it is cutting off comments from the Federalists, it is time for Congress to do this. Social media and big tech needs to realize if they say they're the public square, then maybe it's time for us to be the cop on the beat there. That was Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, talking about a wide range of issues from Silicon Valley to China. That does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And I appreciate you sticking around and listening to this. Tomorrow we're going to have Mark Lauder on and it's Friday. Just be happy. Thank goodness. <laughs> be grateful that it's Friday. We made it. We made it. Just a couple more hours. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.